Father, thank you so much that we can come before you, the only one who is worthy. You're worthy of our praise and our adoration. You're worthy of our fear and our obedience. You are worthy of everything that we can offer you because you've given us everything. Thank you for our Lord Jesus. Thank you for your word. This morning, may it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. May you be glorified in this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 9, we're picking up in verse 18. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and he asked them saying, who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah. And others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Last week, as we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, after this takes place, he was alone. In the other Gospels, we read that, uh, well, the other Gospels in Matthew and Mark, we read that Jesus sent his disciples across the lake. And then in the the fourth watch of the night, like after 3 a.m., he walked out to them on the water. Uh, You know, that's when when Peter said, you know, they first they think he's a ghost. And Peter said, Lord, if it's really you, you know, bid me to come to you. And he says, come. So Peter gets out and he walks partway over and then he looks at the waves and then he sings and Lord, save me. And great, great, great scene in The Chosen. Uh, (laughs) If you haven't seen season three, uh, really, they did a really good job with it in season three. Um, But Luke doesn't record that for us here. But just keep in mind, as we, we think about the gospel accounts in whole, that that is what took place um, there. And it happened, as he was alone in prayer, that he asks his disciples the most important question that anyone can be asked, and we're given the correct answer to that question. But we start with the first part of verse 18, alone in prayer. And it happened as he was alone praying. Last week, we were reminded of the word aremos. It's a word that's been coming up a lot in our Sunday school stuff. Uh, It's a word that I've brought up a lot lately. And it's a place that is away from the distractions of the world, a solitary place. Um, Sometimes that word is translated desert. Sometimes it's translated solitary place. But but don't think you have to be out in the middle of some kind of wasteland for that word to apply. It's just a word that means you've gotten away from the distractions. And this week we see Jesus alone in prayer. The word alone in Greek is katamonis, and it means to be alone or separate in a place. So not only was the place that they went uh, there outside of Bethsaida, a deserted place that we see that back in verse 10, the Eremos, but then he was alone in that deserted place, katamonos. He was separated. 
And the practice that we're working on in Sunday school is the practice of solitude and getting alone and being quiet before God. And this is what Jesus chooses to do after an incredible time of ministry, after performing a number of miracles, he gets alone with his father to rest. And while you may not find the command, right? you, you, you can read through the Gospels and you may not find the command from Jesus to be alone. right? You shall spend time by yourself with God. right? You're not going to see that. What we find instead is an invitation. An invitation given by him to rest. In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 31, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You will find as we progress through today's message that for some reason I got really hung up on using C.S. Lewis quotes. So about like 12% of the message is going to be C.S. Lewis quotes. But I think that's okay because C.S. Lewis is a lot smarter than I am. In a talk that C.S. Lewis gave on that passage from Matthew 11, this invitation that we're given to come and rest in Jesus, he said this, Busier is not better. Because a busy faith is often a misdirected faith. Busier is not better because when we make busyness our main goal, we tend to be busy about the wrong things. It is true that rest is a verb as well as a noun. But if rest is an act, it is a special kind of act. Spiritual rest is essentially an exercise in faith. Have you ever considered what you do when you sleep? When we sleep, we lie down and close our eyes because we believe that the world will get along fine without us. We believe that God will take care of us and the world during our slumber. In Psalm 3.5, the psalmist declares, I lie down and sleep, I wake again because the Lord sustains me. Like sleep, spiritual rest begins with surrender. When we rest, we relinquish control. We relinquish control of the world and we resign ourselves to be carried along by a current that is already in motion. This is a current that has been set in motion by God himself. In the Christian life, rest is synonymous with grace. This means that it must be received before it can be practiced. Isn't that a beautiful thought? And, and, and I, don't, I don't know if anybody else struggles with this, but I do. Um, and, and you can call it whatever you want. Um, some people may call it being a workaholic. Some people may call it um, having control issues. Um, I've come to learn that control is an illusion anyway. There's only one who's actually in control, and that's God. Uh, and I do so much better when I let him be in control and I stop trying to do it myself. Uh, but rest is letting go of that and surrendering to him. And going, you know what? If I don't get everything done today, okay. Because God's going to take care of it. And, and he has funny ways of interrupting us when we think we don't need it. And then we find out we really do. So my encouragement, because this is kind of a message within the message, but my encouragement is to follow Jesus' example 
and get alone with the Father and accept Jesus' invitation to rest in him. It's a wonderful gift that he's given us. Now the rest of verse 18 and verse 19. His disciples joined him and he asked them saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. Jesus' first question to his followers, uh, he asked them, who do the crowds, who do the people say that I am? And their response is typical, I think, of a response we might get today. John the Baptist. For them, in that culture, right, not everybody believed that John the Baptist was a prophet sent by God. So they maybe are thinking that Jesus is some sort of extremist or some sort of religious zealot or perhaps just some crazy guy out in the desert who dresses funny and has a questionable diet. Whatever the case, putting him there relegates Jesus to someone that could be explained and thereby dismissed. Oh yeah, he's just he's just some religious nut. Right? That who who is this Jesus? Oh, he's just some religious nut. Or maybe he's Elijah. This would mean Jesus was the fulfillment of a prophecy in Malachi 4:5, and it would make Jesus a biblical figure, a forerunner of the real Messiah and a prophet, but it strips Jesus of being the Messiah. And of being God the Son in the flesh, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. John 1.29. And there are a lot of people who want to put Jesus in that kind of category. Who is Jesus? Well, yeah, he was a real person. He was a prophet, maybe. Um, you know, maybe some kind of important religious figure. You know, he, he was a great teacher. But that's it. He's not God. He's not a savior. Third one, and I like this one, just one of the old prophets has risen again. That, that's pretty broad. It opens up a really big can of worms as far as the possibilities are concerned. There were a lot of prophets named throughout the Old Testament. I mean, if we just go with the books written, um, we have 16 prophets named. If then you add the fact that David was was prophet and Solomon was a prophet and Elijah and Elisha and a bunch of other prophets that are named throughout the, book, the, the Old Testament. That's a big can of worms. It could be anybody. But again, what does it do? It speaks of Jesus as a prophet or a teacher, but not as who he truly is. So I decided it would be fun. I was curious as to what recent research says people believe about Jesus. So this comes from a LifeWay research study that they conducted in 2022. So year, year and a half, maybe two years old. Three out of four Americans believe Jesus existed as a person, right? Not necessarily that he was God or Savior or anything like that, but they believe that there was a historical figure named, well, we call him Jesus, Yeshua, uh, Joshua. About half the people believe that Jesus was an important religious figure. But the other half don't. 38% of Americans say they have a close personal relationship with Jesus. Leaving 62% who do not or did not want to answer 
And I'm just going to be honest with you. I think some of those 38% were lying. It says about 10% of Catholics and Protestants. This is, this is one of my what statistics. About 10% of Catholics and Protestants report having no relationship with Jesus. Well, then why do you call yourself a Protestant or a Catholic? Why, why would you call yourself a Christian if you don't have a relationship with Jesus? I mean, at least be honest. Only 68% of Christians, this is all denominations, say that Jesus is very important in their lives. That means a third of the church, of people who call themselves believers in Christ, admit that Jesus isn't all that important to them. Huh? I literally have question marks next to these because that boggles my mind. I mean, I've met people, many, many people, who have said, yeah, I don't believe. I, I don't want anything to do with church. I don't, I don't believe in Jesus. Okay, at least you're being honest. But you're talking about people who go to church, who call themselves Christian, and then responding to a survey said, we don't really think Jesus is all that important. I'm confused. Here's a good one. These, these last two are just... Only 52% of people who identify themselves as Christians say that Jesus is their Savior. How does one identify themselves as a Christian and not embrace Jesus as their Savior? Those two things cannot be exclusive or mutually exclusive. You cannot be a Christian and not have Jesus as your Savior. You cannot. And that's not me being legalistic or dogmatic. That's just a fact. Like you can't get in a pool and stay dry. Doesn't work. You can't call yourself a Christian and not believe in Jesus. Only 50% of Christians in the survey believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They didn't survey our church, I don't think. I think we would have messed with those stats a little bit. But isn't that insane? Who do people say that I am? Even within the church, that question isn't always answered correctly. And really, realistically, about half the time, according to this study, about half the time, that question is answered incorrectly. When we ask the question, who do people say that Jesus is? The answers vary so widely, but the common ones are still the same. Some kind of religious leader, maybe a prophet, maybe a historical figure, maybe a teacher. But none of those is actually the answer, is it? I promised you a lot of C.S. Lewis. Here we go. This is from Mere Christianity. I'm trying here, this is the quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, 
or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I've always loved the the liar, lunatic, or Lord argument. Either he was crazy, he was a liar, or he is God. There's no other option. So then the most important question, verse 20. Who do you say that I am? He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. This is the most important question that any of us will ever be asked. Who do we, who do I, who do you say that Jesus is? Do we think of him as a religious leader, a prophet, a teacher, maybe a man who started our religion? Or is he something more? Is he something else? Do we, as Peter did, and this is uh, the way it's recorded for us in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus told Peter that this was revealed to him by God the Father. So who is Jesus? The Christ. The word Christ in Greek, Christos, is the Greek word for anointed. The Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. Or, if yeah, I'm going to clear my throat, the Mashiach. The Mashiach. Means the anointed. He is our Savior, our Redeemer. God in the flesh, sent in the world. And there are many Old Testament passages describing Jesus, the Messiah. I'm only going to mention a couple. So if you will follow me, please, to Psalm Number two. And you don't have to. I'll I'll turn there if you don't want to. But Psalm number two. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed or against his Messiah saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his great displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you. And you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. The gospel preached in the book of Psalms. Isn't that beautiful? The nations rage. The people plot a vain thing. Why? Because they want to try to separate themselves from God. They want to do their own thing. God laughs because you can't really do that, no matter how hard you try. 
He promises his son, the Messiah, the nations as his inheritance. And then we are instructed to worship him and to trust him so that we won't experience his wrath. It's the gospel. Psalm, sorry, not Psalm, Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. And we've actually already studied this passage in the book of Luke. We studied it earlier on in the book of Luke. But in Isaiah 61, the first three verses, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Or the Lord has made me his Messiah. To preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Here we have the mission of the Messiah. To preach the good news, to heal, to proclaim liberty, to open the prison and free those who were bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord, to warn us about vengeance, to bring comfort to those who mourn and consoling, to give us beauty for ashes, oil of joy, a garment of praise, that we might be trees of righteousness. Right? Not our own righteousness, but the righteousness he gives us. Ooh. Daniel chapter 9, just a couple books to the right from Isaiah. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. And you all have permission to stop me if I start dragging on in this passage. Just somebody put your hand up and say, Jason, stop. Because Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27, uh, maybe, well, it is the greatest prophecy in Scripture. Seventy weeks are determined for your people for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, Mashiach Nagid, Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. After 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. The word cut off there is to be executed for a capital offense. He shall be cut off, but not for himself. Whose capital offense did he die for? Ours. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war. Desolation shall are determined. And then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. In the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. On the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And I, I really have to be careful because we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks tearing this prophecy apart one line at a time. Um, if you want to do that, you can go listen to the Daniel study on uh, Beware the Caffeinated Pastor, my YouTube page. Um, but look at what it says. Messiah, the king. Right? It's translated prince there in verse 25, but it's king. The word Nagid is king. And what would the Messiah, the king, do? He would die for us. 
right there in the book of Daniel. I mean, it can't get any plainer. And this was hundreds of years before Jesus was born. You can go back to Luke. In John 10, 23 through 25, Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch and the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. And it goes on from there. But isn't that incredible? People love to claim. Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be Savior. He never claimed to be anything of those. Are you the Messiah? Jesus said, yes. That's what I told you. But you won't listen. That's what he's telling us today. You are the Messiah of God. Or if we go back to Matthew's uh, recording of this account, you are the Son of the living God. Jesus is God. He is of God. He is the Son of God. And this is vital for our salvation. If Jesus was just a person, he could not die for our sins. He would have simply died for his own sin. But only by being God who came in flesh and lived a sinless life could he be the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. And you are welcome to go check out all these verses. John 1, 1 through 14. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Romans 3, 21 through 26. Colossians 2, 11 through 15. And Hebrews 4, 15. I think they're in the notes. If you're listening to the recording, you can back up and write them down. He is God. Psalm 2-7, right? We already read it. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And this is the amazing thing about that phrase begotten. It doesn't mean made. It doesn't mean created. It doesn't mean born. Begotten means to be of the same substance. Jesus is of the same substance as the Father because there is only one true God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Only one God. Matthew 3.17, suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 17, 5, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. In John 1, in the first couple verses, we're told that the word was God. And in verse 14, we're told the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 335 times in the New Testament, the term Son of God is used. 51 of those are exclusively referring to Jesus, though he is part of the context of many of the other 335. What do you think the early church believed? That he was a great moral teacher? That he was an important religious figure? No. They knew that he's God. C.S. Lewis said, The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. This is the reality of what we believe. People 
throughout church history have argued about a lot. You can even go back and look at some of the creeds where they argued about whether or not Jesus is God. I think that was, don't quote me on this, I might be wrong, but I think that one was solved in the Nicene Creed. Um, But the early church had no doubt. Jesus himself told us who he is. And the church argues about a lot of things, right? Should Should we have pews or chairs? Should we have a guitar or an organ? Right? Should we, should we be one of those fancy churches with suits and ties? Never going to happen. Not while I'm here. <laughs> or is it okay to be casual when we come to church? You, you know, are we, are we going to... What kind of church are we going to be? And a lot of those questions, I'm just going to tell you the truth, they don't matter. People who wear suits and ties to church, I love them. People who come in shorts and a t-shirt, awesome. I don't care. I'm just glad you're here. Really. You know, churches that sing old hymns with, with the big pipe organs. Have you ever heard a ginormous pipe organ in a huge old cathedral? It's awesome. Absolutely awesome. No, no doubt about it. And if that's someone's preferred style of worship, great. And if you, if you like guitars, <laughs> I knew I was going to find a way to put this in. Yesterday, um, because I can't do anything, uh, I was sitting on my couch flipping through YouTube. um, (laughs) And we came across the greatest video, I think maybe in the history of YouTube, this is why the internet was invented. It It was a video showing different types of church music. My favorite one was this guy, pastor, nice, nice navy blue suit, slick back hair. And two ladies on either side doing a choreographed dance to what had, it was kind of be what, late 80s, maybe early 90s, right? That kind of worship music when, when, when the, the, the uh, electric keyboards were, not piano, electric keyboards were real popular. And, and there's this, it starts off, I don't dance, but they do this thing with their shoulders. And they go back and forth, and then the girls spin into, into the guy, worship leader, pastor, whatever he was, and they start the song. Beautiful voices, right? They did a really great job. Then there's this other one where there's, there's a woman, and I'm, I'm not going to say she wasn't being led by the Spirit, but this, I don't know that the Spirit always causes people to shriek. And she gets to this point, I'm going to back up the best I can, where she's got the microphone, and she goes, And the pastor slowly walks down the steps, takes the microphone away and goes, hallelujah, sister. <laughs> would that be worth fighting over? I mean, I don't think I would go back to that church, but for some people, that's, that's, that's where they're comfortable. And that's where that's awesome. You know, the one, there's a couple things, but one thing we cannot disagree on. Jesus is God, our savior. Because without that, we're nothing but a social club. The most important question. And you know, I think you've all answered it. I sure hope so. But if you haven't, ask yourself, who is Jesus to you? Is he your savior? Or is he a poached egg? You got to figure that out. Your eternity depends on it. Jesus replied in verse 21. He strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one. 
saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. In other Gospels, Peter, uh, I think it's Peter, yeah, it's Peter, who said, you know, he takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Lord, this won't happen to you. Get behind me, Satan. Right? Because he was, he was getting in the way of what Jesus' purpose was. We, Luke doesn't record that for us. But after Peter's confession, his declaration of who Jesus is, he gives his followers a reply and a prophecy. Jesus replied, don't tell anyone. Peter just stated the most important truth in him, human history up to that point. The only truth that will equal it is the truth of Jesus' resurrection. But Jesus says, don't tell anybody. In fact, he strictly warned and commanded them to keep this to themselves. That phrase means that he forbade the transmission of this truth at that time. And my question has to be, why? Because later on, he commands us all to go tell everybody. But why there? No, not yet. Well, it's because of his impending death and resurrection. Jesus' hour, as he often refers to it throughout the Gospels, had not come yet. It had to do with the moment appointed for him by the Father before the foundation of the world to bear the sins of the world. We know it corresponded with Passover. It was a fulfillment of very specific prophecies like the one in the book of Daniel. Uh, If we go back, or you can go back and listen to the Daniel study uh, and and listen to um, the specifics of that prophecy, it predicted the day of Palm Sunday to the day. 173,880 days from March 14th, 445 BC to April 10th, 32 AD. Now somebody's going to, I'm going to stop myself because I'll just keep going, right? It was appointed a very specific time. So it couldn't just happen at any time, but the specific time chosen. And until that time, the truth of who he is was not to be broadcast. Now, Jesus' disciples did a pretty good job of keeping it to themselves until after the resurrection. Nobody else did. You can read time and time again, Jesus would heal somebody, don't tell anybody, and what did they do? They went and told everybody. But he told his disciples to hang on to that for a while. Now Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection three times in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, uh, it's in Matthew 16, 21 and 23, Mark 8, 31 and 32, Luke 9, 21 and 22, which we just read. Then again in Matthew 17, these are all the, where they correspond. Matthew 17, uh, 22 to 23, Mark 9, 30 to 32, and Luke 9, 43 to 45. So we'll get it again before the end of this chapter. Um, and then finally in uh, Matthew 10, or 20, 17 through 19, Mark 10, 32 to 34, and Luke 18, 1 through 34. But Jesus also predicts his own death and resurrection, albeit a little more subtly, in the Gospel of John. John 12, 7 and 8, John 13, 33, John 14, 25 through 29. The test of whether or not someone is actually a prophet is whether they make a prediction that comes true. Jesus predicted his death and resurrection, and it happened. So yes, he is a prophet, but that's not all he is. He is God. As we close, I come back to this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? As a follower of Christ, our answer should be that of Peter's. 
that we believe Jesus Christ is God, the Son of God, the Messiah who was sent into the world in order to live a sinless life, die a substitutionary death, and then rise again on the third day so that all who believe in him will be saved. That's the answer. However, too many people, even those in the church, as we've seen, who call themselves Christians have differing viewpoints on who Jesus is. But there is only one truth of who Jesus is, and that truth is, find, is found sorry, in the entire library of Scripture. The truth is explicitly revealed in the Gospels, to a slightly lesser degree, the other writings of the New Testament, but throughout the whole Bible itself. In the end, it doesn't matter what the world thinks, what some celebrity thinks, what a famous Christian author or pastor thinks, or even what you or I think. All that matters is the truth that we are taught in Holy Scripture. And God's Word teaches us clearly that Jesus is God. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is our Creator. He is our Sustainer, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Great High Priest, our Lord, our King, our Rabbi, and so much more. There is no other and as C.S. Lewis said, we must choose. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. He didn't leave us any other options. Don't pretend he's something else. Fall at his feet as Lord and Savior, or reject him outright. Don't reject him outright. That's a really bad idea. But if you're not going to fall at his feet in Lord and Savior, you might as well reject him outright. Don't pretend he's something else. And then I'll encourage anybody listening, if you don't fall at his feet as Lord and Savior now, you're going to anyway. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You might as well do it now and be saved and have eternal life and all the wonderful promises that God has given us. Because otherwise... You may fall at his feet, but it won't matter. We studied in Second uh, Kings a prophecy of a guy who didn't believe something that, that God was going to do, and the prophet Elisha told him, you'll see it, but you won't taste it. There will be billions of people who will see salvation. They will see Jesus. They will fall on their knees before him. They will confess that he is Lord. They'll see his, the salvation that they could have had. But it'll be too late. They won't get to taste it. We get to taste it now. And we have the promise of one day sitting down at the feast. For eternity. That's the good news. My closing questions is all as I tend to do. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God? If you're not a Christian, you need to surrender your life to Jesus and let him be who he is to you. Let him be your Savior, Redeemer, Lord, King, and everything else. For those of us who are Christians, we have we surrendered our lives completely to Jesus. 
We come to church, we call ourselves Christian, but is he everything to us? Are we yielded to his work in our lives? Are we obedient to his commands and his call on our lives? Have we truly surrendered to him? I think think something that keeps many of us from surrendering to him completely is having an incomplete view of who he is. So I encourage you to get into the word. Let the Holy Spirit reveal Jesus to you through his word, through prayer, through times of solitude and silence and so on. When you see him for all he truly is, it's much easier to give your life to him. And I'm not saying I'm there. I'm not saying I know everything there is to know. I'm getting bits and pieces like the rest of you. But every time I get another bit, every time I get to know a little more of who he is, I just fall more deeply in love with him. And I'm so much so thankful for who he is. And that's, that's all I want for me. That's what I want for you. Is for you to know him more and more and more. And then for us as a church to tell them. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the truth of who Jesus is, for the truth of who you are revealed to us in Christ, the truth that's given to us in your word. Father, may we celebrate that. May we believe it. May we bow to it. May we share it with others. All for your glory. Amen.